Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Hour 2 of the Loving Liberty broadcast slash podcast. Well, let's dive right in. I think it's uh, Daisy Luther. She goes by The Organic Prepper online, and you can check out her marvelous website at theorganicprepper.com. She talks about how every seed you plant, and she's meaning in a literal sense, like things you would grow in your garden, is an act of revolution. Now, that may seem like strong language, but can I just ask a question that hopefully isn't too incendiary or too inflammatory. Does our political situation look like it's calm or it's steering us towards calmer waters, a more rational and reasonable time, a more civilized state of living? If the answer is not only no, but hell no, it's not doing that. Maybe it's time to consider Becoming a bit of a revolutionary, and I'm talking about in a peaceful sense. I'm talking about setting yourself up in such a way that you are not utterly dependent upon the system and the whims of those who control that system for your sustenance or for the ability to provide for your family's needs. I've been sitting on this article for a couple of days. Why growing food is the single most impactful thing you can do in a corrupt political system. And I want to just share some highlights of this. And, and, you know, I'm not telling you you have to act on this or, you know, you're being irresponsible. I'm offering this as a possible alternative to simply going along with the system and just, you know, hoping for the best. A lot of stuff that feels out of our control. And truth be told, there's a lot that is beyond our ability to influence. But this isn't one of those things. The author of this piece is Alex Petrowski. And he points out the most effective change makers in our society aren't waiting around for a new president to make their lives better. They're planting seeds, quite literally. And through the revolutionary act of gardening, they're rebuilding their communities while growing their own independence. Now, that may sound very metaphorical, but no, I think he's actually correct in a literal sense. Think about this. He says every four years when the big election comes around, millions of people put their passion for creating a better world, a better world into an increasingly corrupt and absurd political contest. What if that energy was instead invested in something worthwhile, something that directly and immediately improved life, community and the world at large? He says the simple act of growing our own food directly challenges the control matrix in many authentic ways, which is why some of the most forward-thinking and strongest-willed people are picking up shovels and defiantly starting gardens. It's become much more meaningful political as a political statement than supporting political parties and candidates. Let me offer a quick interpretation of my own to, to help drive home the point that he's making. If all the politicians were somehow suddenly teleported off this earth and perhaps to a distant star, we'll say Rigel 7, just for argument. If they were suddenly out of your life, 
would you be able to survive? I think the answer for most of us is yeah. I don't depend on a politician to every day put food on the table for me or make the decisions that I have to make to live my life and provide for my family. True, I do have to work within some of their artificial rules, which more often than not are barriers to living a better life. But uh, for the most part, if you took all the politicians out of the equation, none of us would really notice a difference in how we provide for our families. I know there are those who believe, well, Brian, it would immediately fall into anarchy. Every, it'd be every man for himself. Law of the jungle. I'm not so sure that's the case. People who hold to that mentality have been trained probably over decades in the creed of statism. If it's not under the control of the state, it's by definition out of control. We really believe somebody needs to be ruling us. But the idea that we could rule ourselves or or that we could spontaneously and voluntarily organize ourselves within our neighborhoods, our homes, our communities. That just doesn't seem to be a possibility in their mind. But it's stuff like this that shows that you can. Now, on the other hand, if our ability to to grow food is taken away from us, could we still survive? Maybe for a little while, but at some point we would be dependent on someone to provide for our sustenance. Hopefully you can see the point here. You can live without politicians. You can't live without food. So if you put some effort into producing your own food, even if it's just a portion of that food, how much better off are you going to be than people who are totally dependent on, I have to go to the store, I have to get something off the shelf, that was created by somebody else, grown by somebody else, produced or processed by somebody else, and trucked here by somebody else. Look at that chain of logistics. Look how long it becomes. If any part of that chain were to break down, where would that leave you? That's why it's, it's much more of a meaningful political statement to work on starting your own garden than to simply work on, let's get the right person in office. In this article, he talks about propaganda gardening, a combination of guerrilla gardening and political protest, which is about developing self-sufficiency while maintaining a simple or making a simple but bold statement about the world we all share and the rules we choose to live by. And take, for example, Ron Finley. He's the so-called guerrilla gardener from Los Angeles who inspires the world with no-nonsense truth about how the corporate food system enslaves us while proving to us that the most effective weapon in this fight is simply fertile soil. He makes growing veggies cool again, as it should be, because food sovereignty is at the very foundation of personal independence. Ron Finley says, I live in a food prison. It's all by design, just like prisons are by design. I just got tired of being an inmate, so I figured, let me change this paradigm. Let me grow my own food. This is one thing I can do to escape this predestined life that I've unwillingly subscribed to. And the author here says, think about it. Creating your own food supply challenges the status quo in a number of ways. And he lists it out here. Growing your own food decreases dependence on a polluted corporate food system. It improves health and wellness by providing exercise and nutritious food, freeing us from dependence on a for-profit medical system. It undermines Monsanto and agrochemical industries that are polluting the world and killing bees. 
It highlights issues of political control by pitting homeowners and gardeners against government and ordinance makers. Because after all, there are places that will actively forbid you from growing your own food. I'm sorry, but you can't do that. Not in your yard. Really? Oh, yeah. People have gone to jail for it. It builds and heals community by providing a place and activity worth coming together over, and it works to prepare to repair the damage we're doing to the environment with our consumer lifestyles. It protects us against insecurity and food unrest, and it facilitates a greater awakening by setting an example for others to follow. When united, awareness and action create the kind of changes that a rigid control system just can't tolerate. And when extraordinary people like Ron Finley take the lead, a meaningful movement can take hold. This is real action. It's very effective. And it becomes more mainstream to set up gardens in your yard and on your block. And as you do so, you'll witness the reemergence of the kind of society we just can't create by playing by the rules of a rigged system. Ron Finley says, I had 60 people putting in an urban garden while you were all marching. Now, who do you think was more effective? In a recent interview with uh, Mark Angelo of the Superhero Academy, Ron said, just a few generations ago, gardening for sustenance was not the fringe activity that has become in recent decades. Because it was a basic daily act of survival, one that will rise again as a controlled economy and engineered economic collapse will make it imperative to join forces with your community and defend your personal sovereignty. Why don't you churches get together instead of with your my religion is better than yours BS, get together and put in a healthy food market? Isn't that doing good business? If your people live longer, don't you get more money? Now, the author says, what happens when you transform yourself by deepening your connection to nature? What happens when you transform your community by bringing your neighbors together in the goal of providing something of immense value to all? What happens when a nation of transformed communities sees their world without the boundaries of and limitations imposed on us by a corrupt system? He says the four-year cycle of presidential politics in the U.S. is far more effective at stealing the constructive energy of a motivated people than it is at bringing about meaningful change to our lives, communities, and to the nation as a whole. So he says, it's time to try something far more effective and rewarding. Let's overgrow the system and transform our health and communities in the process. I'll post this in the show notes, but I would encourage you to take a look at it. And even more importantly, consider what could you be doing to produce more of the food that you eat? Even if it's not all of it, but if you produced a, a percentage of it, would that not give you a stronger measure of freedom? Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Hey, if you'd like to join the conversation, please do, 801-331-8113. Now, of course, if you're listening to the podcast, that's not going to be a possibility. The phone will ring, but chances are pretty good I won't be there to answer it. Or you could take a chance. Who knows? I might be bored. I might be sitting by the phone <laughs> just waiting for someone to call. Anyway, I want to talk about something else, slightly revolutionary, slightly subversive, since I'm on a, I'm on a little bit of a revolutionary kick this morning. I really do like the idea of gardening, growing your own food as a revolutionary act and, and an act of rebellion against a corrupt political system. I Look, I'm not saying, yeah, I think someday they're going to try and starve us into submission. 
Of course, you realize that has been done before. Joseph Stalin, would you like to comment? To the tune of tens of millions of people starving to death. Horrible stuff. But when I hear about people like planting edible landscapes, vegetable gardens, fruit or nut trees, berry bushes, even their own spices, I can't help but think that they're onto something. Okay, true confession here. One of the great struggles that I have been facing this year, and I'm sorry to, to share my burden with you, is uh, making my lawn look healthy. It's been tough. Last year, I overwatered it, and the grubs had a heyday, and it was it was so ugly. They just they killed big expanses of my lawn. I finally got the rid X on there and killed the grubs, and then had to you know put, try to to bring it back through fertilizer and whatnot. And and it was it's just it's been rough. So I've I've tried to very carefully take care of the lawn, have it fertilized and treated for weeds. We had, you know, we had dandelions taking over early on this year, but uh, the, the weed man who takes care of weeds, not what you might be thinking, uh, came out and, and, and took care of this for me. And, and so I've been fighting this battle and then, and then it got hot. And I mean, really hot, like nearing a hundred degrees for a couple weeks at a time. And I was so careful not to overwater that I actually was underwatering my lawn. And so it started to look stressed and these huge dry patches are appearing. And I'm just like, what is the problem here? Obviously, I have a brown thumb. I, I, can't, uh, I can't seem to, to make anything green. And of course, it doesn't help that my next door neighbor um, apparently does have the green thumb. And his lawn is easily the most luxurious, beautiful, just healthy-looking lawn in the entire neighborhood. The contrast and comparison not working in my favor. But that's been my struggle. And by the way, the rain we got over the last few days has been really nice. The lawn, my lawn's looking pretty healthy right now. But I bring this up because all the effort, all the time, the expense, at 60 bucks a treatment, it adds up. And it makes me wonder, why don't more people forego that beautiful manicured lawn? I know it looks good. I know it gives good curb appeal. Why don't they forego that and put in, I don't know, raised garden beds? Why don't they grow more food and produce more food for themselves? Now, I know some people who've done this. To the extent that they had chickens, they kept bees, they had a greenhouse, they could literally grow food year-round. And this was at about 5,000 feet in elevation. Pretty impressive. About 75% of the food that they ate came from their yard, including fruits, nuts, the spices that they would use in cooking, the greens that they would grow, eggs from their own chickens, that's pretty impressive. Now, this was a retired couple, so they, they actually had time to tend to that homestead. A lot of us wouldn't have that kind of time. But I'm just thinking, what kind of peace of mind is that? The ability to know that uh, if everything broke down or for some reason they were stuck having to provide for themselves, they could do it. Now, you might not eat as well as you have been, but I think our disconnect with how our food gets to our plates is something that is, is immense. So it's a revolutionary thing. 
to better yourself by being able to provide for yourself. No, it's not as uh, you know bold a statement as carrying a pitchfork and a torch. But it's absolutely an assertion of your personal sovereignty and your willingness to shoulder the responsibility necessary to be free. That makes sense, right? So let's talk about something else here that, uh, that may be worth considering. Road schooling. Yeah, you've heard of homeschooling, but there is a new education frontier known as road schooling. Amelia Bailey wrote about this on intellectualtakeout.org. She talks about Christine Lindstrom and her family who've been part of what's called the road schooling movement for the last three years. It's a relatively recent phenomenon, but I, I think I actually have some friends who've been doing this. It has a lot in common with traditional homeschooling. The place of education, however, just happens to be on wheels. Now, when Christine Lindstrom was asked, why don't you think the public school system is the right option for your family? Keep in mind, she was a teacher herself. She says, well, there's just too much overemphasis on testing and the necessary strictness and oversimplification that comes from having large classes and too few teachers. Road schooling, on the other hand, allows for a lot more freedom and creativity. Flexibility is the name of the game. The Lindstroms have chosen a year-round schedule for their kids' schooling, and this includes constant travel with the family, usually staying in one place for one to three weeks, and it allows for the creative integration of education, not only with the sights seen, but also with the traveling itself. For example, recently they used the Oregon Trail as their route, supplementing their online curriculum with materials like the Little House on the Prairie book series. Their online curriculum removes the need for bulky textbooks while providing guidance for the children's education. And this setup also allows for flexibility and personalization for each child in the household. Some subjects can be taken by, can be taken by multiple children at the same time. Other subjects, like math, can be individualized. And they have extracurricular activities out there on the open road as well. For example, Christine mentions that her oldest daughter is able to take dance lessons both online and occasionally in person. A fellow RV user created her own app to allow others on the road to get involved in the art. However, organized group activities for the children are the one aspect of road schooling that Christine says is significantly lacking. No little leagues or running teams are to be found along the open road. But despite this lack of organized sports, there's a great sense of community among road schoolers. And that came as a welcome surprise to Lindstrom. Not only do people socialize at their campsite, but whole families sometimes travel together. Her children as well are very social. Whether they're chatting with a park worker or they're dropping in at a church on Sunday, they are far more than ready to share their unique lifestyle with anyone who's willing to listen. Now, as far as the legalities and registrations are concerned, Texas is the Lindstrom family's state of residency. And in the Lone Star country, the, an orga, there's an organization called Escapees that helps to make the Lindstroms and other RV users' lives just a little bit easier. One of their many services is to collect the family's mail and forward it to whatever address they happen to be staying at for a while. Now, while the lifestyle is certainly not for everyone, it's absolutely wonderful for those it suits. Christine Lindstrom admitted that should any of her children wish to take a more traditional approach to high school, well, then the family would certainly settle down for a while. However, once high school is over, she says she and her husband would be back out on the road. Traditional public and home schools have been around for years. However, with the ability to learn as well as live on the road, a new way to schooling is opening up. Why not take the opportunity? Asks Amelia Bailey. 
I don't know. Would you consider doing something like that? My kids are all pretty much uh, getting up there and grown. I only have some of them living at home now. And those that are living at home, uh, you know, two of them are over 18. And, you know, two of them are, you know, just, you know, in the, in the, in the last years of, of their schooling. <sighs> I, wish that, uh, I wish that my family and I had done something like this. I don't know how, you know, you know, do you have to be financially independent, living on annuities or something like that? I guess if I won the lottery, that, that might be one of the things I would consider. But that's an idea worth exploring. Road schooling. I'll have a link to the article in today's show notes. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. By the way, just want to point out that uh, my friend Joe Carey will be back on the air today at 12 noon Mountain Time. He's got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Uh, I, for one, am, am anxious to hear uh, Joe's take on the uh, two Democratic debates held earlier this week. I know that, uh, look, not only does he have a pretty solid take on stuff, but he's also really funny. And I need some humor, because otherwise what I see happening politically uh, really it kind of drags me down. Maybe we could talk about this for a little bit, uh, about how political polarization really is about feelings and not facts. This is a phenomenal article by Robert B. Talis, Talis uh, f- published on Foundation. Nope, actually, sorry. This is from this is from uh, Intellectual Takeout, originally published, though, on The Conversation. And his article is is describing how some of the polarization that we have today doesn't come from people actually knowing a certain fact, and well, because of my reasoned and rational judgment, and because I have studied and assimilated these facts, this is where I'm coming down. Most of it is just we stake out emotional ground, and then, uh, by gosh, that's the hill we're going to die on. And I know I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush here, but I really think social media lends to this kind of thing. All a person needs to be involved politically on social media is an opinion and a whole lot of emotion to, go b- to, to back it up. And that's how most of those exchanges take place. It's just people hurling insults at one another. Twitter is no better. In fact, in some ways, Twitter is worse. But the problem is you've got a lot of people feeling like that is doing something of substance. Look at me. Somebody was wrong on the Internet, and I stood up, and I corrected them. But there's very little incentive to actually examine other viewpoints, even though they may be different from your own but to thoughtfully look at them and say, okay, what could this add to my understanding? Regardless of whether it changes my mind. Nope. It's, uh, you know, it's scorched earth. <laughs> we got we to dominate and we got to make sure that uh, we have, have utterly crushed the opposition. But it doesn't change anybody's mind. And that's, to me, the worst part of all. Here's what Robert B. Tallis says. He says, politicians and pundits from all quarters often lament democracies." polarized condition similarly citizens frustrated with polarized politics also demand greater flexibility from the other side 
Now, decrying polarization has become a way of impugning adversaries. Meanwhile, the political deadlock and resentment polarization produces goes unaddressed. Ironic, right? Commentators rarely say what they mean by polarization, but if Americans are to figure out how to combat it, they need to begin from a clear understanding of what polarization is. Now, apparently he has written a book called Overcoming Democracy. And Robert B. Tallis argues that polarization isn't about where you get your news or how politicians are divided. It's about how a person's political identity is wrapped up in almost everything they do. So there are three different ways that polarization takes place or that you can measure political distance. Polarization most strictly defined is the political distance separating partisans. But this intuitive idea may not be so simple. So the three different ways of measuring that distance, one compares the platforms of competing parties. Polarization would be the extent to which these things are opposed. A second assesses each party's ideological homogeneity. This definition of polarization concerns how many of the party's officials are moderates or so-called bridge builders. And the third way involves neither platforms nor officials, but instead the emotions of ordinary citizens who affiliate with a political party. What this does is tracks the extent to which citizens dislike affiliates of other parties. Now, he says research suggests that although no major U.S. parties, uh, that although the major U.S. parties are severely polarized along the first two dimensions, the American public is no more divided now over policy than it really was 30 years ago. In fact, on certain hot-button issues like abortion and gay rights, rank-and-file citizens who identify with a political party have actually moved closer together. Huh. I would not have guessed that. Nonetheless, Americans believe that their political divisions or their policy divisions are especially pronounced. Polarization in the third sense has skyrocketed with inter-party animosity more intense now than it has been in the past 25 years. And there's an interesting graph here. What each party thinks of the others. In a 2016 survey, many Democrats and Republicans said members of the other party were more likely to be closed-minded, dishonest, and immoral compared to other Americans. So let's start with the Republicans say Democrats are more closed-minded. 52% of the Republican respondents said closed-minded. 45% said Democrats are dishonest. 47% said Democrats are immoral. 32% said Democrats are unintelligent. 46% said Democrats are lazy. Now, what what Democrats are saying about Republicans? 70% of Democrats say Republicans are closed-minded. 42% say Republicans are dishonest. 35% say that Republicans are immoral. 33% of Democrats say that Republicans are unintelligent. And 18% of Democrats say Republicans are lazy. Well, with the exception of the closed-mindedness, I, I think the Republicans, <laughs> they, the higher percentage of them seem to, to really weigh in on the, um, the negatives of what they perceive of members of the Democratic Party. But you notice how little room there is for nuance in that? Or the, the idea that, hey, not every person who votes Democratic, not every person who votes Republican is, is monolithic. In other words, there are, there are varying degrees of ideological purity, for lack of a better phrase, on both parties. 
And I see this all the time. I see Republicans who condemn other Republicans. You're not Republican enough. You're a rhino. You're a Republican in name only. Which some people would say, thank you. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Others would say, no, no, I'm, I'm pure. I assume the Democrats are kind of going through a similar identity crisis. But in other words, though Americans are less divided over the issues, we do see ourselves as profoundly at odds. And we more intensely dislike those we regard as politically different from ourselves. And the author says this suggests to him that when citizens detest those with opposing affiliations, political parties are driven to just overstate their differences, to stress ideological purity, to vilify the opposition. For example, he says, consider the popular slur among Republicans, rhino or Republican in name only, which derides GOP members who are seen to be insufficiently devoted to the party line. A similar dynamic can be seen in discussions of those vying for the Democratic nomination, where the hopefuls are often assessed according to the extent of their anti-Trump sentiments. Just a few days ago, the president declared certain Democratic House congresswomen are dangerous and may hate America. Now, there's an easy fix to this kind of polarization. Stop hating your political adversaries, but that's easier said than done. Why do people despise those who are politically different from themselves? The answer lies with a widespread cognitive phenomenon called group polarization. When you talk only to those that you agree with or listen only to news that affirms your opinions, you become more radical in your beliefs. And as people radicalize like this, they grow less able to comprehend opposing views, more likely to dismiss objections to their opinions, and increasingly prone to regarding dissenters as incompetent or depraved. Think about the last time you were present in a packed arena watching your favorite team win a home game. As you roared along with your fellow fans, everyone's enthusiasm for the team spiked. At the same time, animosity for the opposing team and its fans intensified. Your mood was elevated because your identity was affirmed. Cheering with fellow fans makes us feel good about ourselves. And online environments tend to function as immense polarization machines because they enable individuals to select their information sources and filter out challenging or unfamiliar messages. Many have suggested that people would become less polarized if they could just break out of their echo chambers and expose themselves to more diverse opinions. However, there's a crucial difference between prevention and cure. Diversifying your media diet could help prevent group polarization, but it may not reverse the polarization once it has taken effect. A 2018 social media study exposed both Democrats and Republicans to Twitter messages from people with moderate but opposing viewpoints. By the end, participants actually expressed more partisan views than they had when the study began. Once group polarization has taken effect on a person, they tend to regard the expression of opposing viewpoints as an attack on their identity. And that just affirms their negative attitude toward their political opposition. So people radicalize in concert with like-minded others due to that mutual affirmation of a shared identity. And this behavior intensifies their shared attitudes, including a negative view of outsiders, which in turn generates the polarization of party platforms and officials. This all makes sense, right? Well, the author says, from his perspective, there is no easy fix. The trouble lies with people regarding political affiliations as group identities and their political parties as warring teams in a winner-take-all death match. And that is why I find politics pretty distasteful. We'll be back after these messages. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. As we enter the final segment, I'm just going to throw that number out there. If you have uh, any desire to weigh in on some of the things we've covered thus far. Okay, this is kind of a strange topic, but I'm going to bring this up just because we are... We are in a time where we are told, hey, there is no such thing as right or wrong, right? All those traditional mores that came before us, well, we can turn loose of those. And at the same time, there are moral absolutes, at least as it pertains to political correctness, that cannot be violated. And even if you violated them many, many years ago, well, there can be no forgiveness. Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org has a really interesting article about sugar babies and Epstein's teenagers. What, what, what must we think? And here's what he says. He says, I'm confused. You see, I thought the definition of a prostitute was a male or female who accepted money for sexual favors. In fact, he says, my online dictionary offers a more chauvinistic definition, a person in particular, a woman who engages in sexual activity for payment. Now, Jeff Minnick says, I'm not sure why that definition singles out women, but the sentiment is still in accord with mine. So there's a thing today in colleges. We're seeing an uptick in the number of so-called sugar babies. These are female students who lease themselves and their favors to wealthy sugar daddies who in turn give the sugar babies money for tuition, necessary expenses and certain luxuries. Yeah, it's, it's, it's supposedly a more upscale way of sleeping your way through college. But he says, I have some questions. Are these college students prostitutes, or do they fall under the old-fashioned category of mistresses? Can we define Sally, a biology major intent on medical school, as a mistress? A woman other than his wife with whom a married man has a continuing sexual relationship? And what if Sally's sugar daddy is unmarried or divorced? Then is she a mistress or a prostitute? Can she be both? And what are we to make of websites designed to connect such men and women? Seeking.com slash sugarbaby, for example, describes its female candidates who the site calls attractive members as sapiosexual and hyper hypergamous, meaning they are sexually attracted by intelligence and they desire a relationship that lifts them up in class or stature. Now, the site's owners assure us that more than money is in play here, but then add that sugar babies are not constrained by traditional definitions of relationships. Well, that's convenient. What do you think feminists think of sugar babies? Jeff Minnick points out 40 years ago, they used to proclaim that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Well, are bass and trout riding Schwinn's these days? Now, the reason he's asking these questions, and and I think he's raising a very legitimate question here, is because recently our news outlets have just inundated inundated us with reports of the wealthy Jeffrey Epstein and his sexual debaucheries, many committed with underage women. Using female procurers, Epstein apparently lured young women, including teenagers, to his New York mansion, his various estates, to his island of sin, and had his way with them. Awful. I think we'd agree on the face of the matter. Like some teachers or priests, Epstein groomed underage girls and then took advantage of them. But he says if we dig a little more deeply, we find that some of the girls themselves helped procure more girls for Epstein, feeding his proclivity for young females. Hmm. That's disturbing. Unlike first reports, we learned that at least some of these girls were not homeless or runaways. They were in school 
living with at least one parent, and as one of Epstein's accusers says, wearing braces. We also find that some of the girls from whom he sought sexual favors returned voluntarily to him time and again, in part for the money he was paying them, and in part, we should assume, because the arrangement agreed with them. So some more questions. Our schools are failing to teach our young people mathematics, reading, and writing. Are they also failing to teach sexual education? Do we need to explain to teenagers that 40-year-old strangers requesting massages have ulterior motives? Do we need lectures telling them that a grown man who asks a 16-year-old to strip to her underwear is up to no good? Do we need to tell young people that the guy slipping you $200 isn't doing so because of the goodness of his heart, but because you performed certain acts? And he says, where in the name of heaven were the parents of these underage females? Where were the adults in their lives? Why, for example, did the graduate student with whom Epstein had earlier molested, uh, whom earlier, he'd earlier molested her younger sister, I'm sorry, whom he had earlier molested, why would she allow her younger sister, 15 years old, to fly off with him to a ranch? In other words, she knew what he was about. Now, Jeff Minnick says, certainly we can sympathize with these young women. Feeling crushed by bills in college, it's easy to go online and hook up with a guy who offers you financial relief. You're 25 and you're beautiful, but you're working as a secretary. You want more luxuries from life. You're a teenager living in a broken home, or maybe you're poor or even homeless. And you figure by giving some old guy a massage for money, that's not going to do any harm. Or you're middle class, dazzled by his wealth, and you like the money he gives you. Okay, but this is, this is where he really drives this home. He says, here's what I'd like to ask these girls. If you're selling your body to some rich guy to get through school, how are you any different than a streetwalker? Someday you may want a husband and a family. How will you square that with what you're doing now? And if you were an underage female abused by the likes of Jeffrey Epstein and you returned repeatedly to his mansion, what are we supposed to think? Yeah, you were young and dumb and taken advantage of, but you also took the money and kept coming back. Why? What was the attraction? Did he give you attention you were missing elsewhere? Did you enjoy his company? What? Now, Jeff Minnick says, I understand some readers may take offense at these questions, regarding them as either rhetorical or as sarcastic. He says, I don't mean them that way. Instead, I would sincerely like to ask these young women, what were and are you thinking? Those are some pretty tough questions. And before anybody gets, you know, all bent out of shape, well, he's blaming the victim here. I don't think he's absolving Jeffrey Epstein from anything that he stands accused of or that he has been convicted of previously. But that does, it does put a little added dimension to the situation. It, it would be one thing. You know, for, for these girls who he stands accused of having uh, taken advantage of sexually, if it had been like a, a one-off, and, well, he, you know, groomed her and took advantage of her, but she never had contact with him again, that would be one thing. But if they were coming back to him, if they were accepting money and favors and so forth, and by the way, it, it sounds like in some cases there, there may have been at least some parental knowledge 
but they like the fact that, oh, he bought us a car. Oh, he flew us off to Hawaii or he flew us to this, you know, place or that place. I know this is an awful thing to ask, but uh, is it possible that maybe some of those parents were willing to look the other way? Because they liked some of the fringe benefits that were coming, even though they either suspected or maybe they knew full well. Yeah, this guy's totally taking advantage of our daughter. Ah, but if she doesn't have a problem with it, then neither do we. Now, if that sounds judgmental, sorry, but this this is one of the things I've been handicapped with. My sense of right and wrong. <sighs> Look, I can be flexible. Okay, I don't think Jean Valjean needed to spend 20 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread and then trying to escape. Okay, so uh, I'll hearken to the uh, Les Miserables example. I think the, the punishment far outweighed the crime in that case. But some things are still wrong. And no matter how we may try to distance ourselves from those traditional old standards and mores that, uh, that placed an emphasis on sexual fidelity. It should be kept within a marriage relationship. It should not be squandered into this endless pursuit of just pleasure over everything else. I know that's the mentality that, uh, that has taken hold. But I don't think we can safely abandon these kind of things without first asking, why, why were they, why were these limits ever adhered to in the first place? When you think of it in these terms, how many billions of minds over thousands of years of human history have thought about or struggled with the answers to these questions? Are we supposed to believe they were all wrong? So I don't think Jeff Minnick is out of order for asking these young women, what were you thinking? Why would you do this? And to the young girls who sell themselves, you know, looking for a sugar daddy to help pay their way through college. It sure sounds like prostitution. I mean, that's, uh, I know we're, we're trying to make all things respectable. Hey, there's no such thing as wrong, but what if there is still such a thing as wrong? What then? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.